Michael Ostrong here with another dose of fine wisdom. That's hashtag fine, F-E-I-N, wisdom. Conversation with Bruce Fine, constitutional scholar and author. How you doing, Bruce? I'm doing well today. Thanks, Michael. Fantastic. So, Bruce, uh, I've been doing a lot of reading and thinking about a new movement here in the United States called minimalism. Also, another word used is simplicity. And so recognition, at least within this movement, that Americans have a tendency to move from one shiny object to the next. We're very consumer-oriented, and that our priorities are pretty much screwed up because we're always looking to buy the new thing, to, to the new house, the big house, the car, the clothes, the watches, the technology, you know, whatever allows us to look, feel, and, and, and act uh, differently than who we were before. It's like we always think like if we have the new thing, somehow our lives can be transformed and be different than it was without that thing. And the folks in the minimalist simplicity movement are recognizing that those are kind of screwed up priorities, that in fact there are other things that are more important in life than just having things, having the new shiny objects, that we are too attached to our material possessions. And if you look back at the spiritual systems, you know, the religious systems, you know, a lot of them teach the same thing, uh, whether it's Christianity or Buddhism or such. And I know that you don't, I've never heard you use the term minimalism or simplicity, but your operating philosophy exudes <laughs> that kind of perspective. And I wonder if you could talk about your operating philosophy within that context of simplicity and minimalism, uh, it as a cultural movement, your thoughts on it, and your personal life, how, yeah. how it reflects that. Well, I think well. that the first thing that comes to mind is Thoreau's statement, you know, in, in Walden, you don't want to be enslaved to your possessions. Uh, and I've always said that the, the man who has little and, and desires nothing more is rich. Uh, the man who has five houses or ten houses and, and covets more is poor. Uh, it's a matter of psychology. Going back to even King Lear, the, the poorest beggar is a barest thing superfluous. It, it takes very little to just subsist, if you will. And I certainly uh, subscribe to the idea that uh, the only thrill in life, the only real love in life that never grows old is say, it's the love of philosophy, the love of wisdom, the love of virtue, the love of the search for truth without ulterior motives. Uh, because it's always a challenge every day. Why am I doing this? Is it the right thing to do? Do things that are honorable. Uh, and that never becomes jaded. Uh, all the other things in life really become, I think, uh, one, uh, they diminish uh, in their rewards by repetition. Everything gets stale. Uh, the thrill diminishes by repetition, other than, say, the search and the practice of virtue and philosophy. And I think you're correct that the, the real earmark of uh, enlightened civilization, you know, uh, the higher elevated civilization, is the values that they place on things like magnanimity and wisdom and toleration, self-doubt, um, discipline. It's your ability to restrain and refrain uh, from following the DNA uh, inclination towards what I call sex, creature comforts, money, power for the sake of power. Your appetites. Your appetites, if you will, exactly. <clears throat> That, that's, that's the greatness of a civilization. And we think, for example, Michael, about, say, ancient Greece, and we read about Socrates or Aristotle or Plato and um, Antigone and Euripides and Aristophanes. You know, we're not reading and, and getting value because we ask, 
well, how many oxen did they have in their, you know, in, in, in on their farm? You know, how rich were they? What were the kind of clothes? You know, did they look like the Kardashians? How many, how how wealthy they were? It was well, what were the values? What drove them? You know, what was the courage? What what wisdom and insight into human nature, uh, and restraint that caused them to be great and and to uh, elicit desires to emulate them? And that's what our culture needs to get back to. Uh, to, to, to having philosophers as being the ones who are most revered because it is. It is the most exciting, Michael. It's what I call learned thrill. Uh, we all are born with a DNA, for good or for ill. With, we, 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 we're attracted, I say. Power, sex, creature comforts, money. Uh, the idea of wisdom, the idea of search for truth at all terms, those are learned. Those are learned values, the idea of virtue. And they are also, they're thrills that come not in a single moment. You know, like you get the house, or you have sex, or you have a lot of money. But they're thrills that endure over time. Because in fact, it is your practice uh, that's consistent over time that shows you're <clears throat> dedicated to these values. I mean, anybody can be virtuous for five seconds and then go rob a bank or commit murder. It's the fact that your whole life testifies to your commitment to these values that provides the, these rewards that are internal. So let me ask you, I, I know you work for the Reagan administration and you go back to the Nixon administration, we're involved in the impeachment hearings uh, for Nixon. Um, so you've been involved in the conservative Republican movement for an awful long time, since at least the 70s. And I'm wondering your, your thoughts at the political level, because it seems like the old right, almost like the uh, pre-World War II right, um, had those kind of values. They valued community, they valued marriage, they valued family, they valued the search for wisdom. A lot of it was in the religious traditions, but still search for wisdom, valor, honor, virtue, and such. And it seems to me that a lot of that has been replaced by, I don't know if you call it the new rights, I don't know where you put the historical cutoff point, but who are interested in free market as the highest expression of human life, eff efficiencies, you know, like um, n not about human relationships or the search for knowledge, but stuff. And ha what, what do you think, if anything, did happen from the old right to this new right and the loss of the search for virtue, the loss of the search for truth? And I'm making broad generalization mm -hmm. statements. I'm sure there are, there are folks on the center-right, conservative side, and I do know some because I read them who are still caught up in the old ways of living their lives. But generally speaking, it seems like the Republicans, especially, maybe not so much the conservatives, but at least the Republicans, are so much more interested in, in consumerism than not. Well, they are, but I don't, <clears throat> I, I wouldn't overstate it as a Republican or Democratic issue, Michael. I think your general observation is accurate, but I think it's across the board. I mean, you, consumerism, go watch Hollywood or the Oscars or whatever, the fashion shows on Paris. You know, those are a liberal side, and what's that other than consumerism? Just glamour for the sake of glamour. Uh, I think that it's affected the entire culture, uh, not simply the Republicans, although it's true, I think, as a matter of articulation celebrating the free market and wealth, you know, wealth for the sake of wealth, efficiency for the sake of efficiency. You know, Mussolini made the trains run on time, so hey, wasn't that great? Uh, becomes paramount instead of stepping back and say, no, what really should be paramount in any culture uh, is virtue and wisdom, magnanimity, self-doubt, 
entertaining different ways of approaching life, uh, and especially always being concerned. Say this is the most important philosophical value um, it, 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 from the beginning of time has always been a willingness to take a risk of being the victim of injustice than to be a risk being complicit in injustice. It is, yeah, we don't, we're not omniscient, but you know, I'll take a risk of being a victim because I don't want to kill or destroy or maim somebody who may be innocent. Um, that's a huge philosophical uh, divide between what I consider the enlightened and then people hate survival for the sake of survival. Because survival for the sake of survival is the creed of a tiger and a lion and a, you know, a wolverine or anything like that. We're supposed to have our brains, our, our, our cerebral equipment to rise above that. You know, that's what it means by having you know, a moral conscience by having moral sentiments, even though they can't be reduced to something as exact as Euclidean geometry. Uh, and there is this fascination that you're true, that we, we talk about, you know, there's supposed to be a barometer, if you will, of, of how our health is of a nation. Oh, what was the GNP? What's the unemployment rate? What's the national income? What's income inequality or whatever? You know, it, 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 well, fine, I don't pose the statistics. Do we ever go back and talk about the Enlightenment and Voltaire and John Stuart Mill and Aristotle and Socrates and say, well, but what was the unemployment rate? You know, that was the real test of, of, of their value as a civilization that's worthy of emulation? No. I mean, we don't even think about it for a second. When we talk about the American Revolution, is people talking about unemployment rates at the time. Well, who had health insurance? We're talking about liberty, philosophy of government, why we have government of all, unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's, that's the real stuff uh, of humanity that makes us different from animals. And, and going back to the idea of simplicity, I think you're exactly right. I'm this, I don't want to celebrate my own life, but I go back and I, I read Plutarch's Lives, you know, and that gives me far more value than watching the Super Bowl or all you know, the Kardashians or such. I don't even have words to describe Snooky and uh, Honey Boo Boo or whatever. You know, they're, they're off the charts. They're, they're not, they don't live in, in my universe. Um, I don't, other people are not going to be a, a bros pair and cram virtue down other people's throats, but that certainly is not my view of, of why we're here on earth and, and why we've been given you know, endowments that enable us to think and reason and uh, to, to, to search and, and practice virtue. Have you always been kind of living on the path of minimalism and simplicity? Or did you have an awakening at some point? Or was it a slow process that evolved over time? Well, it's, it's like most things, um, I, I think, when you're mature. It, it, they do th evolve over time. Although I never, for example, at high school, however, I, I never wanted a car. I didn't even have a car. Until, it's a small BW bug, I think, after I graduated from law school. And I c couldn't understand why all my friends there... They were worried about the Thunderbird and the Finns or whatever on cars. I don't care about that or how big a castle is, you know. It's so stupid. Now, I wouldn't say it. I had a developed philosophy when I'm 15 or 16 years old or something of that. And it's easy to get involved in, uh, you know, creature comfort life. But I, I, those were always marginal to my existence. That's sort of maybe built into my, my genes. Um, uh, but it became more pronounced, I guess, when uh, growing older and reading more, I saw how trivial these things were in, in, in the long run. And if you wanted to have you know, an impact on the arc of, of 
mankind. You, you need to move to philosophy. Which I say is it's quite unfortunate that that in our culture, growing up as as a child, you don't you, unless it's forced on you. It's not something that's talked around the dinner table in the classroom and with friends. Hey, is this the right thing to do? And you know what what you know what are the the most important values in life? What does it mean to search for truth without ulterior motives? Um, and so it, it and we're all uh, creatures who like peer uh, approval uh, or gregarious, and so it, it's hard to develop a philosophy, uh, a mode of living that, in some senses, removes you from the mainstream of, of many many people. This past week, I was doing a good bit of reading on the homeschooling movement, and I'm wondering because you mentioned education. You know, some of the critiques of the people I read, the reason they took their kids out of school is that peer pressure, is that these kids are being socialized into the consumer-oriented culture, uh, which these parents who happen to homeschool their children don't think is appropriate for their children, and they want them to grow up to be adults who are not so caught up in things and power, um, knowledge and tradition are a little bit more important than these folks, at least the ones I read. And I'm wondering, generally speaking, what, what's your take on the whole homeschooling movement? Well, it's a difficult um, issue for this reason because I think they're, they're tugs in both directions. And I'll say that I t taught my kids. I, they, they were in school. It wasn't homeschooling, but <laughs> I viewed that I needed to teach them <laughs> something that they weren't going to encounter in school, especially how to compose a, a sentence and to speak English. <laughs> oh, uh, but, but putting that aside, see, this, this, is, this is a real dilemma, Michael. On the one hand, you want to develop a child who's got sufficient um, self-confidence and self-esteem and identity that they can resist the peer pressure. I mean, that's, you don't want to shelter them. So, because your metal, your, your strength comes from encountering temptation and saying no. Uh, and you become weakened if you're never exposed to any temptation and then maybe you are and it's kind of a, a shock and then you're less certain what the decision's going to be. So I never, I never tried to shield my kids from peer pressure that I otherwise would find rather abominable. I said, you know, that's your choice, but this is an alternate choice. You, you got to find your own way. But I, I just, I do think that is a problem. Um, if you shelter children too much, and at some point they're going to go out on their own, college or otherwise, and I don't think it's atypical that many uh, kids who feel the college is the first time emancipated, they don't know how to deal with their freedom. Mm -hmm. uh, and on the other hand, you know, you expose them to temptation at an early age with peer pressure, they may make dumb decisions. But after all, you know, a lot of life is trial and error. You know, you don't want to have a dumb decision that's fatal, they end up with a drug overdose and are dead, uh, but decisions that are less fatal but even dumb, um, you know, they could just skip school with a girlfriend or something and, you know, that's a dumb thing to do but and it happens and you need to recognize why that wasn't so smart. But that kind of uh, opportunity probably is, is important to developing the internal rectitude to stay on the right path. You, I think, have jokingly said you taught your kids outside <laughs> of school to form a sentence and to speak English. <laughs> Uh, but I don't, I don't think it's half-jokingly. I don't necessarily know about your kids, but in terms of the, our general education system here in the United States, I mean, there are good schools, and there are good, there are good students, and there are good teachers. 
but you constantly hear the kind of downward spiral of our whole education system, and I mean the public government-run ones, but you also hear a little bit even some of the private schools, which are capitulating to the pressure of the public school system and, and ways of thinking and, and kind of reducing the, 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 the requirements of learning to rote tests and so, to, to, to standardize tests and such. Um, that doesn't, th that type of system doesn't seem conducive to creating thoughtful children who become adults like the ones that you are talking about, who are looking for something higher, the virtues that you have discussed so far. Uh, is reform of our education system at the, at the public level possible? Have we gone too far down the other path? Do you even see it as a problem? Well, it's a, it's it, it definitely a problem, but I think <clears throat> I think the public education uh, deficiencies are a reflection of the degradation of the culture in, in general. Uh, I mean, I in some sense was fortunate to going through public education right after Sputnik in '57, mm -hmm. and the, the the nation thought we were going to be buried by Khrushchev and the Soviet Union, and so really focus was on uh, education and learning and. If you didn't want to learn, then you could go vocational education. I mean, everyone in my classes were at 99.9 percent. You know, that was that was their percentile score on virtually everything. And, and but that changed when we became lazy in the 60s or whatever. That fear factor dissipated. Uh, but I think, in, in in some sense, Michael, this is a a reflection of you know, the the downgrading of of the standards is a reflection of the fact that we have become such an empire, we've become so dominant that we lost uh, the kind of uh, discipline uh, that's needed in order to succeed. I say one of the great ironies of our lifetime has been the fact that the disintegration of the Soviet Union, the so-called victory in the Cold War, has been one of the worst things that's ever happened in the United States. We're number one. We have all angelic DNA. We don't need to think anymore. Uh, hey, we've shown that we're superior to everyone else. And uh, the consequence has been a debasement of standards, uh, a staggering arrogance, uh, and, and it, it's, it's difficult to, to get a turnaround. No empire in the past like the United States has succeeded. Uh, we're different than all other empires. We call our birth certificate, all of our founding sacred documents are anti-empire. So we can revert to those without being called anti-patriotic and suggest, hey, we're not doing anything different than those who fought at Valley Forge and Lexington and Concord were fighting for. Uh, but still, these overall, say, the, the DNA is, is still thrusting forward. Hey, you know, the creature comforts are everything, and, uh, and, and we already have won, so why should we work hard? Uh, we don't need to. Um, and that's, say, something that can be overcome, Michael, only with leadership. And unfortunately, I believe that you know, with the absence of, of Rand Paul, who's challenging some of the, the establishment policies or whatever, we have what I call non-leader leaders. Uh, they're just they're just flowing with the the degraded um, the degraded culture. Thank you, Bruce.